Thank you very much indeed, Kate, and the whole Scott family. Thank you again for that uh, wonderful time, for all your hard work. Um, and uh, I can see the Kate and William interviews becoming quite an internet hit. That's <laughs> wonderful. And Thomas, so well done on that reading too. It's a real tongue twister, and uh, you read it clearly for us, so thank you for that. So let's uh, turn to this passage then, which I've entitled The Wretched Man. You might think that's a reference to the fact that it's me preaching again, but it's actually taken from the passage, of course. So let's have a look. I hope you've got Romans seven, fourteen onwards in front of you. So we know about viruses nowadays, don't we? We know how viruses replicate, replicate inside the cells of a living organism. And we then know, know that, that how they then wage war against that host organism. How they cause damage. They rob it of its energy. They drain its life. What a great picture of sin that is. Paul has shown us uh, in the earlier verses in this chapter, how God's law on its own is powerless to break sin's hold on us. And in this passage we've read this morning, Paul continues that theme. He is showing us just how deep the problem of sinful of the sinful nature of humanity goes. In verses 14 to 17... He spells out the basic problem. And then in verses 18 to 20, he repeats that, basically. We have the same thing repeated twice. The problem is basically that I can't help myself. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. The law is good. But I am unspiritual. I am enslaved by sin. And so we see here in these verses, firstly, we see an acknowledgement of our innate Sinfulness. We are innately sinful. It's something we're born with, we grow up with. It's there. Our sinfulness is like the law of gravity dragging us down. This innate bias towards self, if you like. We all have it. You may not think of yourself as sinful, but you cannot deny that you have an innate bias towards self first and foremost. It's not a nice truth to have to admit. People hate this thought. It's not surprising that people hate this thought. It's interesting, um, in the current fascinating debate about racism, you will hear people saying things like, you know, we're not born racist. We have to be taught to hate each other. That's an interesting statement because on the one hand, it contains a lot of truth. It is true that the culture that surrounds us as we grow up shapes us, informs us, and reproduces itself in us. So that in that sense, we are taught, if there are negative things in that culture, we are taught those things. However, it is sadly not true that a newborn baby has no propensity to want to get its own way. That newborn baby has that propensity towards self-centeredness. It's there from the start. 
And when that butts up against someone else with the same self-centeredness, that's where problems start. That's where strife and trouble come in. And we quickly develop a heightened sense of threat, especially from anyone who is different to us, anyone who is not part of our own tribe, because they're different. If we're powerful enough, we can justify oppressing them and using them for our own ends, if we can. Or when we perceive this other tribe is somehow threatening to take away our rights or privileges, we respond aggressively. And so racism rears its ugly head. Of course, we, uh, we uh, pick up expressions of racism from our culture, from our families. Of course we do. We do learn that in that sense. But the seed is there from the start. Nobody has to be taught how to lie to protect ourselves. That comes naturally. It comes programmed in, it seems. Nobody has to be taught that, why should I attitude that we all exhibit from a very early age. It's there in all of us. That bias towards wanting things to suit ourselves means that most of the time we don't even realise how selfish our outlook is. But interestingly, that's not actually what Paul is talking about here. That sinfulness means... uh, That sinfulness means that actually we can't even do the good we want to do. It's not even talking here about the things we do without realising how sinful they are. He's saying we cannot even do the good we want to do. I do not understand what I do, verse 15. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And then again in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We can't even do the good we want to do. Paul is talking about someone who recognises God's good law, his good ways, the wisdom and the rightness of God's guidelines, that they are a blessing, that they, they, if we follow them, we are like a tree planted by the river, as Psalm said, and so on. He, the, the, This person recognises that, but they just can't seem to follow them, even when they want to. This is a vivid description of inner conflict. This is what we're like at our best, actually, when we know what we should do, but we really struggle to be able to do it. We might think of someone who's addicted to a particular substance or habit, um, we, this, this person knows that that particular thing leads to destruction and, and chaos and, and pain for everyone around them, but they can't stop themselves. Well, the truth is that at some level, we've all been here. We know, for instance, we know the hurt that our sharp tongues can cause, but we just can't resist that remark, that quip that we think makes us look clever at someone else's expense. We can't ju- just can't resist spreading that juicy morsel of gossip. And as we vow not to, we, we, we just get drawn into spending time with those people that we know are such bad influences on us. Or perhaps we just can't seem to resist 
allowing our computer mouse to click on those really, really unhelpful websites. We'll regret it later, we know. But the impulse is strong. It says verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. He's saying that the fact that we do desire to live better lives, that in itself is a recognition of the goodness of the law. Remember we had the question last time, is the law sinful? Well, no, it's not. The law is good. God's ways are good. But still we are powerless. And so, that's his that's what he's, 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 he's showing here, that the law is not to blame. It's not the law that's to blame, verses 16 and 17 and 20. Uh, we said this last week, sin is the villain of the piece here. That's what F.F. F. Bruce said. The trouble is, sin is not an external influence on us. It's an overwhelming internal force. It's just like that virus draining us of energy destroying our lives. Do you know how to catch a wolf? Well, this is how it's said that the uh, Inuits used to do it. I don't know whether it's true or not. It might just be a fable. But it's a good illustration, uh, if a rather gruesome one. So if you are settling down to your Sunday lunch early, then you might want to either stop eating or stop listening. So this is... How it is said they used to do it. First they would coat their knife blade with animal blood and then allow it to freeze. And then they would add more layers of blood to the blade, freezing it each time, until that blade is completely concealed by frozen blood, a bit like a, uh, an ice lolly, I guess. And next the hunter fixes the knife in the ground with the blade pointing upwards. The wolf scents the blood and comes and starts licking the icy knife. And the taste of the blood in the ice spurs him on to lick faster and faster until eventually the knife's sharp edge is laid bare. And as the wolf licks, of course, his tongue is cut. But there, by then, the wolf's craving is so great that it doesn't recognize that it's feeding on its own blood. Just craves more and more until it bleeds to death. That's how you catch a wolf. Gross. But it's really not unlike how sin works in our lives. This is what it's like. This is why sin is so dreadful. It's a dreadful thing because we don't realize how our own cravings are feeding on our own life source, as it were. All the willpower in the world cannot overcome it. Not consistently. Not enough to bring about real inner transformation. In verses uh, 21 to 25, uh, we see this inner struggle continued. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. And we see a, a pattern of things here. We see two egos. We see two eyes. There's one wanting to do good, but then there's evil alongside. There are two principles or two laws here. There's one delighting on God's law and one waging war against that desire. Perhaps we recognize these things in our own lives. And then we have two cries from the heart. 
What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? One crying out for deliverance. And then one crying out in thanksgiving. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll come back to those two cries later. And then we have two types of slavery. One recognizing that God is the best master to have. But this seems trapped within a greater slavery to the principle of sin. So why is Paul telling us this? Well, let's ask again the question that I floated last week, if you were listening or watching then. Remember we asked that question that has been debated hugely by Bible scholars over the years. Who is the I in Romans 7? I, it's full of eyes. I, I, it looks... uh, 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 Who is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about his daily experience as a Christian? Now let's be honest, when we read this passage, that's, that, that does, that does resonate with us because we, we, it's an appealing thought that we know this struggle. We know this struggle that Paul is talking about. It's so familiar to us and it's reassuring to think that Paul knew it too. The trouble is with that approach that Paul is just talking about his daily Christian experience is that it really doesn't ring true with what Paul has already said. For instance, in chapter 6, uh, he said, he said um, we, uh, he's talking about us dying and being raised with Christ, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then verse 14 in chapter 6, sin shall not be your master. And verse 22, now that you have been, you who've died and been raised with Christ, you have been set free from sin. He's talking to believers, to Christians. And so that uh, that doesn't seem to uh, resonate with what, uh, if he was talking about his experience. If Paul is describing his daily experience as a Christian in chapter 7, then that completely undermines all he has said in chapter 6. So, some people conclude he's talking about what he used to be like as an unbeliever. And we talked about this last week. But do you remember we said that before Paul followed Christ, Paul actually seemed to have great pride in his legalistic righteousness. It's hard to imagine him racked with guilt about not being able to do the good that he thought he could do. Is he talking about unbelievers in general then, maybe? Well... In verse 22, he talks that this person here is uh, delighting in God's law. In verse 25, he talks about being a slave to God's law. This is someone, as we said, who not only recognizes the goodness of God's law, but, but seems to love it. That's not really a typical unbeliever then, is it? So, who is this I? Is the I a believer or an unbeliever? Neither actually seems very satisfactory. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones argued that actually this is someone who perhaps has been brought under the conviction of sin and yet hasn't yet grasped the gospel. They're kind of in between committing their lives to Jesus. And you can read about this sort of experience uh, in times of revival in particular. People would be bowed down before uh, like this with their guilt for days or weeks 
before the glorious truth of the gospel broke through on them. And you can read, for instance, uh, John Bunyan's account of his conversion in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And you can see how that fits. A lot of that sounds so much like Romans 7. Or Martin Luther, racked with guilt in his monk's cell, throwing his ink pot at the devil, until he read this very letter, the letter to the Romans. He understood that the just shall live by faith, and he was led out of his guilt. But again, this doesn't seem to be a very common experience. Tom Wright argues persuasively that Paul is speaking, speaking as a Jew, as he is, is actually outlining the history of Israel here. And this, this resonates with the history of Israel, loving God's law, but powerless to obey it. And in a similar vein, John Stott recognizes that this could be a description of Old Testament believers. Uh, like those psalm writers, uh, we, we, uh, Kate looked at um, Psalm uh, 1, and uh, like, like the person who wrote that psalm, or the person who wrote Psalm 19, or Psalm 119, which, which just talk about just a real passion for God's law. The law of the, God, the, law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. I delight in your commands, Psalm 119, because I love them. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Loving God's law and yet feeling powerless to obey. As I said last week, I stray towards the more corporate understanding of these verses that it is in some way a picture of Israel's story which is then also a reflection of the story of humanity. But similar to Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think we could think of this as, if you like, a hypothetical I. It's a a what-if I. Imagine someone who is desperate to please God, someone who is desperate to follow his ways, like Martin Luther. Yet, says Paul, this is Paul's point, even if this hypothetical person does exist, they are in themselves powerless to please God. Or you might say this is a polemical I because Paul has made this character up. He's constructed this character in order to make his point more powerfully. That even in our best moments, with our best intentions of ourselves, we cannot do this. And that we cannot even live like how we want to live, let alone how God wants us to live. And we're doomed. We're doomed and condemned. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But here's the thing about that cry. Paul gives an answering cry, doesn't he? He gives an answering cry. Thanks be to God. The whole point of Romans chapter 7 is that we're not supposed to stay in Romans chapter 7. That's the truth. The whole point of Romans chapter 7 is that it is followed by Romans chapter 8. What is the difference between Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8? Well, the Holy Spirit is the difference. The Spirit gets mentioned once in chapter 7. He gets mentioned in, in, in verse 6, uh, where Paul says, 
Um, Now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that's almost like a microcosm of what's to come. That little bit there is a, is a, is a, um, uh, a foreshadowing of the great themes of Roman chapter 8. But the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times or thereabout in chapter 8. That Old Testament believer has the desire to please God. But they don't actually have the Spirit, not in the same sense that we do, not in the same sense that we do following Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out in all his fullness on all believers. The Spirit was at work in the Old Testament, but not in the same way. Romans 7 man is trying to do it in his own strength, not in the power of the Spirit. And so Paul follows his heartfelt cry of despair. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? With another heartfelt cry, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because it is through Jesus Christ that we're buried. We die to sin and we're buried and we're raised with him to new life. Which is life in the spirit. Life with the spirit. God's empowering presence. And we'll find out so much more about that in chapter 8. Because chapter 8 is amazing. Chapter 8 is glorious. Chapter 8 is fantastic. We'll spend a lot of time there in the autumn. But here's the reality. To appreciate the glory of chapter 8, we really have to spend some time dwelling in the depths of the despair of chapter 7. So here's the thing I want us to grasp. And given that I am now, I'm afraid, I'm going to leave you hanging over chapter 7 until September. Because there's nothing stopping you going ahead and reading chapter (laughs) 8. Meditating on that. Ready for that. But here's the thing I want us to grasp as we read these verses that do resonate with us in chapter 7. We know how it feels. It's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong to read Romans 7 and think, yes, that's exactly how I feel. That sums up my my Christian life as I struggle against sin so much. It's not even wrong to think, well, you know, it's good to know that Paul experienced the same tussles I do, because I'm sure he did. It's not wrong to say those things as long as we don't stay there. If we stay at the end of chapter 7, we will have completely missed Paul's point. Because Paul's whole point is that chapter 7 goes into chapter 8. We have to move on to chapter 8. And you know, let's be honest, we do feel this struggle, don't we? If we're Christians, if we're believers, other people may not care that much, but we do. We have this the spirit in us that is sensitive when we step out of line, when we don't follow as we should, when we let ourselves down, when we let God down again. You know, even those of us who have followed Jesus for years, I would say especially those of us who've been following Jesus for years because two things, we've learned to learn our own hearts and over the years you 
things that you didn't dream were there in your 20s, by the time you're in your 50s, you realize, yes, they are there. That's a bit sobering. But also because you find yourself thinking, well, I've been walking with the Lord for 50 years. What progress have I made? What hope is there of progress in the future? And so we feel this even more, actually, the longer we've been on the road. See, specific sins that still seem to keep us ensnared. Habits we can't seem to break. Sinful traits that we've just settled down with and accepted as part of our character. Certain ways of thinking so ingrained in us, even especially when those have been formed by early experiences, moulded by those who've moulded us. And that can lead to despair. That can lead to utter despair and discouragement. It can lead to people actually just saying, well, I just can't do it. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop pretending to live a Christian life. I can't do it. It can lead to a lack of assurance. How can I be a Christian if I struggle in this way? Surely things uh, should be different for me now. Or it can lead to an emphasis on superficiality, an unwillingness to go too deep for fear of what it throws up. So we keep that hidden and we present a good face. We scrub up well and come along in our, to Sunday on our, with our nice, uh, nice uh, shirts and our nice frocks or whatever and we... We seem to be respectable. We're not going to go too deep just in case of what's thrown up. Or it can just lead, a lot of us this is true I'm sure, it can just lead to a low level of expectation of what God can do in our lives. So we just uh, keep our heads down, not expect too much and just wait for glory. You know the battle against sin is always hard. And victory is rarely gained instantaneously. And even when it's gained, we find ourselves slipping back. Victory won't be gained fully until Jesus returns. But none of that means that we have to stay in Romans 7. We don't have to stay there. In fact, we really shouldn't stay there. And there are some believers, with all those things, we'd find ourselves stuck in Romans 7. Well, we've got to start reading Romans 8. And there are other people who are stuck in Romans 7 because they've never actually finally surrendered their lives to Jesus. They've never actually committed their lives to him. They've never bowed the knee. They've never turned in repentance and faith to accept his forgiveness and his new life. Perhaps they've never just been able to face up to the fact that actually they are so bad that they need saving by Jesus and him alone. People who are still trying to pull up, pull their own socks up, trying to live externally righteous, knowing deep down that that complete inner inconsistency that is there. Friend, if that is you, stop playing that game. Turn to him now, today. Admit that you cannot do it. Believe that Christ died for you and commit your life to him. Let him save you. Let him cut that bond between the principle of sin and let him fill you with his empowering presence, the Holy Spirit.
It doesn't suddenly become very easy after that. But that would be the start of God's lifetime work of transforming you into the image of his son to make you more like Jesus. So yes, I am leaving you dangling over the summer. But you know, 24, verse 24 is not a bad place to be left. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage. It's not necessarily an encouraging passage. But we do know it resonates with us. We read it and we think, yep, that's what it's like. So, Father, I thank you that it's not the whole picture. Thank you so much that, as we'll see in the autumn, Romans 7 is followed by Romans 8. And, Father, for those of us who feel like we're just banging our head against a wall with some particular aspect of our lives, or just a low level of Christian progress, I pray that you will encourage us. I pray that you will help us not to use Romans 7 as an excuse, But I pray that actually it will drive us to you in prayer as we ask for your power. Father, for those who are stuck in Romans 7 because they've never accepted that this inner sin, that we can't conquer it ourselves, I pray that you will humble them and you will open their eyes and let them see Christ in all his glory and mercy and give them faith to turn to you, I pray. Encourage us, Lord, and help us to encourage one another. Thank you that you understand exactly what we're like. You see our hearts fully. We don't need to hide from you. And I pray you'll help us to walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing, or uh, the Scott family are going to lead us as we sing a wonderful old hymn that has uh, had a new bit added to it. Just as I am, that's how we can come to him, just as we are, without one plea, but that his blood was shed for us.